Our sermon text for this morning comes from the book of Matthew. You'll note that the scripture reading is the same as last week's. It's, we're going to read Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 16. Last week we focused on the baptism of Jesus. This week we're going to focus in on the temptation of Jesus. But we're going to read the, the larger passage to get the context. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you should feel free to grab one from the back table there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, you should feel free to take that Bible, write your name in it, and keep it as your own. Bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Well, before we read God's Word, let's, let's pray together one more time. Our Father, we, we come to hear from you. We come to receive your word. Uh, we pray that you would open our hearts by your spirit. We confess, Father, we, we come and we're distracted by so many things. Our minds are wandering in so many different areas, so many things going on in life. And uh, Father, uh, we pray that you would give us focus right now, that we would be able to think deeply and meaningfully about the scriptures, that we would hear from you, that your spirit would open our hearts, apply your word to our hearts, and that we would, we would draw closer to you uh, because of uh, your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Well, 
Do you ever find yourself in the midst of some kind of difficulty, trouble, or suffering, and you say to yourself, this just isn't supposed to happen. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Maybe it's a a broken relationship. Maybe it's some kind of physical illness. Maybe you're facing false accusations. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you failed a class or didn't get into the program that you were really hoping to get into. Something went wrong, and you find yourself saying, well, if God really loved me, then all this stuff wouldn't be happening. And sometimes other people put that on us, right? They say, well, if you're really a Christian, you shouldn't have to suffer. You, you shouldn't be struggling. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be happy, right? I mean, you, you know, if, if maybe you just need to start praying more. Sometimes we put it on ourselves. We say, I shouldn't have to go through this. I mean, I'm a Christian. My life is supposed to be good. And when life goes wrong, we think that, that we must be to blame, right? I must have done something wrong. Maybe I'm a really bad Christian, and that's why this is happening to me. Or, or maybe God really doesn't love me after all. Well, this morning we're going to find that all of those thoughts are really lies of the devil. In fact, they're the very same kind of lies that Jesus faced in the wilderness. We're going to look at four things this morning. We're going to look at Jesus' identity and mission, which is really just recap from last week. We're going to look at Satan's challenge to that. And then we're going to look at some of the results of that. We're going to look at... uh, Satan's kingdom, the kingdom he wants Jesus to have, which is a kingdom of condemnation. And then we're going to look at the the kingdom of grace or the methodology of grace, right? How grace works itself out uh, in our lives. First, let's look at Jesus' identity and mission just by way of reminder. Jesus' identity and mission, we saw, was proclaimed at his baptism. He's the perfect son of God. He's the heir of all the glories of heaven. He came to identify with sinners, to suffer and to die. And in that way, Jesus would inherit the kingdom. The kingdom of God, we've said before, is is the renewal of all things under God's rule. It's the renewal of individuals and relationships. It's the renewal of social order. It's the renewal of the cosmos, ultimately. The fullness of the kingdom will be a time when there's, there's no more sins and no more tears. So Jesus comes to establish that kingdom. It comes to establish it through his suffering on the cross as the perfect son of God. Well, this morning we're going to see that Satan challenges Jesus' mission. He's going to take Jesus' identity as the son and he's going to try to use it to to subtly at first and then not so subtly shift the mission of Jesus. That's what Satan is trying to do in these temptations And the essence of Satan's temptation is this. He's saying to Jesus, look, as the son of God, Jesus, you really shouldn't have to suffer. I mean, there's got to be an easier way for you to gain the kingdom than through the cross. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, we see uh, Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Having received the Spirit in his baptism, he's then driven out into the wilderness to to do battle, so to speak, to face Satan. And Satan comes to tempt Jesus with three very specific, very calculated temptations. And each of them challenges Jesus as the son to rewrite his mission as the suffering servant, to redefine it. 
Now, it's interesting, Satan doesn't challenge that, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's not what he's challenging, actually. He knows better than to challenge that. He knows that Jesus is the Son. Notice his temptations begin in verses 3 and 5. If you are the Son of God. Satan actually isn't asking if this is really true. The word if to us sort of seems to mean that he's asking, is this true? That's not, sometimes we use the word if differently than that too. Like uh, if I know that you've gotten a brand new car that you love a lot and I see you walking down the street, I might say, hey, if you bought that new car, why are you walking down the street, right? I'm, I'm not questioning the fact that you bought the car. I'm just trying to draw some implications. I know you got this car, so why, you know. So that's what Satan's doing. He's saying, if you are the son, or maybe we could say since you are the son, right, then here are some things that should naturally follow. Now also Satan knows that Jesus' goal is to gain the authority to renew all things, to gain the kingdom. And so Satan isn't questioning Jesus' desire to gain authority over the earth. In fact, the last temptation, Satan says explicitly, I'll give you authority, right? You can have it. And so he isn't questioning, he doesn't, isn't challenging Jesus as the Son of God. He isn't questioning Jesus' desire to gain the kingdom. What Satan challenges is that whole part about suffering. Satan tempts Jesus to rewrite his mission as the suffering servant. And he does that in three ways. First, he, he tempts Jesus to serve himself. He says, look, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And it makes sense, right? I mean, Jesus, he's saying, if you're really the son of God and you're hungry and you've got to be hungry, right? Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, well, just feed yourself. I mean, you, you have all authority, right? Go ahead and command the creation to satisfy your hunger. It's easy for you, Jesus, right? This is not hard. You can do it. You're the son, right? And so the temptation is to get Jesus to focus on his needs rather than the needs of others. It's, the temptation is to get him to serve himself to alleviate his suffering rather than serve others through his suffering. Well, Jesus responds to that. We'll get to his response in a minute. And then so Satan comes and he tries to tempt him again. He tries to twist the father's promises in the second temptation. He says, look, Jesus, this whole thing about inheriting the kingdom through suffering, that sounds way too difficult. And so Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, look, throw yourself down and, and God will protect you. You can trust God, right, Jesus? See the, 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 the persuasiveness of this argument? You can trust God. God has promised that he would command his angels charge concerning you to bear you up to stop you even from stubbing your toe, right? So if God's promised Jesus, then you should be able to do this. Go ahead, throw yourself down. Your father promises he'll take care of you. And I think part of Satan's point here is uh, also that, you know, he's saying, look, think Jesus, if you, you're at the temple, right? If you throw yourself down, everybody's gonna see you. And when the Father catches you, right, when his angels bear you up, everybody's going to follow you. Everybody's going to be amazed at your miracles, and everybody's going to follow you. Think of it, Jesus, followers without suffering, a kingdom without the cross, all based on the promises of the Father found in Scripture, Jesus. Go up to the temple, throw yourself down, and the kingdom will be yours just like that. Well, finally, Satan tempts Jesus the third time just to, to blatant blasphemy, right? I mean, he, he shows him all the kings, kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and he says, I'll give you all of this if only you will fall down and worship me. 
And Satan must be getting desperate, right? Because he, he again, he's tempting Jesus to, to rewrite his mission as the suffering servant because he's saying, look, if you won't take the kingdom by your power, and, and, if, and if you won't ask the Father just to give it to you, right, then, then I will. I'll give it to you, Jesus. Just ask me and I'll give you the kingdom just like that. See, Satan's tempting Jesus uh, to either use his power or to call on his Father to use his power or even to look to Satan himself to use his power to gain the kingdom apart from suffering. Satan wants Jesus to pursue the kingdom, right? All the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. That's what he offers to him but without the cross. Oddly enough, suffering is not in Satan's mission statement for Jesus. He says, Jesus, there's an easier way to do this. Peter, you know, the disciple Peter, he will actually later say the same thing, won't he? I mean, Peter in Matthew chapter 16, he, he uh, in Matthew 16, we'll see in, in uh, weeks from now, uh, Matthew chapter 16, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's awesome, right? He finally gets it. Peter gets it. And then when Jesus explains that what that means, and he says he's going to suffer and die, Peter rebukes Jesus. You remember that part in Matthew 16? It's also in Mark chapter 8. We read it earlier. Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, far be it from you, Lord. What Peter's saying is, I get your identity. You're the Christ. But suffer? Right? That just doesn't make sense. That's not your mission, Jesus. Jesus will look at Peter, and what does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter's tempting Jesus there the same way Satan is here in this passage. He's saying the crown without the cross, right? Jesus, there's got to be an easy way to do this. Suffer and die, I mean, that that doesn't sound very practical, right? That's not the way the world works. There's got to be a better way. Even at the cross, people will be saying the same things, right? People at the cross say, well, if you are the son of God, get down off that cross. They'll say he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the, if he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. See, they're saying, if you're the son of God, show us your power. If you're a king, right, prove it and conquer. If God delights in you, where is God to deliver you? Why are you suffering if God delights in you so much? If you are who you say you are, the son of God, why the cross? Again, we, we actually, we hear these same kinds of things. Obviously, we're, we are not the son, the son of God. And yet we hear these same kinds of things, variations on this theme. You might hear it, you might say it to yourself, somebody else might say it to you, right? Okay, Christian, you're a child of God, right? Um, you, you shouldn't have to suffer. I mean, can't you pray and just have God remove your troubles? Shouldn't, shouldn't they just be gone just like that? Or, okay, Christian, you're a child of God, right? I mean, well, this whole growth in Jesus thing shouldn't be this hard. There's got to be an easier way to become holy. You should just pray for a breakthrough and it will come, right? Or if you just read your Bible, Every day for 15 minutes, then this spiritual breakthrough is going to come just like that. Or, or maybe you should just, you know, cast out a demon of anger or lust or greed or whatever it is, right? And all your temptations will go away. There's got to be an easy way to do this. Or, okay, Christian, you're a child of God, right? Ministry shouldn't be this hard. Maybe there's something you're doing wrong. 
If we just adjust the music or if we just alter our message or if we just get the right aesthetics, right, or, or position ourselves in the right way, you know, Satan is so subtle because he takes good things and he twists them, right? He takes good things and he, and he twists them. He says, well, as a child of God, life should be easy. Just use your power. Just find the right trick and everything will fall into place. Of course, it doesn't work like that. We know that. We experience that day by day when we experience suffering. And we know that this isn't alien to the Christian life. It's actually a part of it. But Satan's way of thinking, right, leads to a kingdom, really, of, of condemnation. Because the kingdom without the cross is a kingdom without grace. You know, think, think about this. What if Jesus had gone along with Satan's alternate strategy? What if Jesus had said, you know what, you're right, Satan. Suffering is really way too hard. I'm the son of God, after all. I don't have to suffer. I, I, don't, I don't need to do that. Let's do it your way. What would have come of Jesus' kingdom? I mean, this is obviously totally in theory, right? Uh, but but just, just bear with me for a second. Think about it. What would that kingdom have been like? Jesus' kingdom would have been a kingdom of pure condemnation. Uh, think about what this kingdom would have been like. If Jesus had used his power to serve himself, right, uh, to, to avoid suffering, and then was given the kingdom anyway, this, is, this would have been a kingdom that was shaped by looking out for self and, and self-indulgence and a desire for comfort and, and, and avoiding suffering and, and using God, right, for your own ends. This would have been a place where, where we build our own little kingdoms through power and self-assertion, right? This would have been a kingdom totally contrary to the kingdom of Jesus. In this kind of world, right, there would be no forgiveness, because in this kind of world, this is the kind of world where the strong eat the weak, right? Where that's about the survival of the fittest. And if you fail, well, you failed. Too bad. You know, if you can't turn these stones into bread, then too bad for you, right? That, that would have been the kind of kingdom that would have re resulted. That's the kind of kingdom that Satan wants uh, us to build today. That's really the kind that we see around us, isn't it, very often, even in the church, Right? Satan wants to throw us back on our own power, on our own effort. And he says, if you want the kingdom, if you want, if you want life, right? if you want to know what real life is about, well, just go take it. Right? That's what he was tempting Jesus to do. Just go take it. Just, just command these stones to become bread. Just bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdom. It's yours for the asking. Satan says that to us too, doesn't he? It's, it's the continual temptation of the church. Satan says, oh, you want heaven? Okay, all right, work for it. Right? Uh, let's see what you can do. Right? Go to church and read your Bible, participate in social justice programs. Right? Then maybe you can have a place in, in the kingdom. That's, that's the lies of Satan. That's the logic of Satan. But it's a kingdom of condemnation because when we fail, right, which we will daily, right, when we fail, all we can do is, is be condemned. We're constantly asking, how good is good enough? Right? What do I have to do? How much do I have to do? And of course, when we succeed, if we think we succeed anyway, if we're doing well in life, we condemn others because then we think, well, I, I did it. Why can't they? Right? The same is true with, with spiritual growth and, and church growth. Right? If we, if we have this mindset that it's just about going out and getting it and taking it in our own strength and our own power, if we just need to assert our power, we just need to find the right tips, the right tricks, the right techniques, and everything's going to fall into place. And the result is, if we don't grow the way we want, spiritually or as a church, then we condemn ourselves for not doing the right thing. We're just doing something wrong. It's all my fault. 
Or if we do grow, then we condemn others because we think we've achieved this by our power. Why can't they? See, in Satan's kingdom, life is there to be taken by force. And if you don't have life, well, it's your fault. Too bad for you. Well, we're a a sinful people here at All Souls, right? If you're visiting with us, I should warn you, right? You're surrounded by sinners. And we, we have fallen in. We fall into this way of thinking. And the question for us is always how, right? Where have we fallen into this way of thinking? Where it's all about my, my self-assertion, my power, human ingenuity, right? Your ability. What are, what are we tempted to trust in, to put it differently? What are we tempted to trust in other than the gospel for entrance into or growth in the kingdom? You know, my temptation continually is to trust in intellect, right? Because I want to be so careful uh, how I say things that I won't say anything until I've thought it to death. It's, it's, yeah, frustrating. Because I have to keep thinking and thinking until I get everything just right, just perfect. Because I think if I say things right, right, then people will really know Jesus, right? As if it were all up to me. And the way I phrase things, rather than up to Jesus and his spirit and his work through me. Well, what are you tempted to? Jesus is going to say in Matthew 10, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. And yet I'm anxious about what I speak and what I say. What do you trust in? Other than Jesus, other than his work, other than his spirit. For either your standing with God or your growth in the spirit. Well, we've seen Jesus' mission as the Son of God is to identify with sinners and to suffer for them, to save them from their sin and win the kingdom. We've seen Satan's challenge to that. He's saying, well, since you're the Son, you shouldn't have to suffer. Just serve yourself. Just take the kingdom by force. Use your power, Jesus. You can do it. We've seen the results of that. It's ultimately a kingdom of condemnation. Everyone looking out for their own selves in a game of survival of the fittest. But now we want to look at, at one last thing, right? We want to look into Jesus' response to Satan and his methodology of grace, right? His, his kingdom of grace. How does Jesus uh, fight Satan's temptation and secure a kingdom of grace instead of a kingdom of condemnation? Well, first, Jesus obeys the Father, right? And he obeys the Father perfectly, You know, three times he quotes scripture to answer Satan. And Jesus lives a life of obedience to the word of his father. He's the obedient son. His mission is the father's mission. His methods are the father's methods. He he didn't come to serve himself and to avoid suffering. He came to serve us and to suffer for us in obedience to his father. What did this obedience lead to for Jesus? Well, it led to the cross. Jesus obeys his father throughout the gospel, right? Not starting here, but even before here, but starting here, running through the entire gospel. Jesus obeys his father and it leads to the cross. He suffers for it. That's the mission of Jesus, right? He came to identify with sinners, to suffer in our place. He pays the relational debt we owe to God. By his suffering, we are freed from that debt. So his kingdom could be one of grace, not one of condemnation. It's a kingdom not not taken by power, but a kingdom that's given as a gift. And of course, that's not the end, though, because Jesus not only comes, he not only obeys, he not only suffers, right? The cross doesn't have the final word. Jesus obeys, he suffers, and then he rises from the dead. And Jesus' obedience and suffering leads to new life. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the kingdom. 
Remember, we define the kingdom as the renewal of all things under God's rule. Well, what that means is in Jesus' resurrection, we see the renewal beginning, right? The renewal of Jesus' humanity as the first fruits as the renewal of the renewal of the cosmos. And it's after the resurrection, Jesus will declare, you remember in Matthew 28, after the resurrection, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I've been given the kingdom. The kingdom is mine. Jesus obeyed, Jesus suffered, Jesus rose, and then he received the kingdom. Now, in one sense, there's nothing left for us to do but receive it by faith, right? Receive the kingdom. We receive Jesus. With that, we receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive the gift of the Spirit, who's the down payment of the kingdom. Jesus has won the kingdom, right? Through his obedience to the Father's plan, through his suffering in our place, and through his resurrection from the dead. But the question then remains, right, how does Jesus gaining the kingdom in this way shape that kingdom, right? How does Jesus' work shape this new world that we are now a part of? Jesus' life is now the pattern of life in the kingdom of God, right? Jesus' life is the pattern of life. You know, and what does that mean? Well, it means first, right, this, this new kingdom is about, is one about submission to the Father, right? In Jesus' kingdom, we should strive to obey. And we do that in weakness. We do that in our frailty. We do that with many, many failures. We do that in fits and starts. That's okay because we have forgiveness in this kingdom, right? And so we mess up every day, and yet we get back up again and strive to obey our Father, The kingdom is one of submission to the Father in imitation of Jesus. But this kingdom is also about, uh, uh, it's not about, unlike what Satan suggested, it's not about asserting ourselves to satisfy our needs, but it's about serving others sacrificially. The Christian life is about loving others and doing good to others and forgiving others and putting others before ourselves and caring for the widow and the orphan. All not as a means of attaining the kingdom, Right? It's a gift. It's given to us by Jesus. But because Jesus served us and gave us the kingdom, now we can go out and serve others as representatives of his kingdom. And so we represent Jesus as we go out into the world and as we love others the way he loved us. A third, this kingdom or this, this, this new world that we are now a part of by grace is one in which suffering leads to glory. One in which death leads to life. See, far from Satan's lie that Christians shouldn't suffer or they shouldn't struggle, suffering or difficulty is actually integral to the Christian life. I hate to tell you. How are we called? I mean, think about it. How are we called to suffer in the Christian life? And there are actually lots of passages that are about suffering in the Christian life. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that he wants to know nothing. No, that's another passage. He says elsewhere he wants to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. In Philippians... He said he wants to know Christ and he wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings, right? That he might become like him in his death, right? That's what Paul says. That's his goal, to become like Christ in his death. How are we called to suffer in the Christian life? Well, Jesus, in the passage we read earlier in Mark 8, tells us to take up our cross and follow him. He's calling us to a life of self-denial, of self-sacrifice, Entrance into the kingdom means taking up our cross, denying ourselves to follow Jesus. That's, that's, that's suffering. That's not easy, right? Um, growth in the kingdom means putting to death what is earthly in us, Paul will say, right? Put to death your desires. 
and seek new life in Christ. Manifesting the kingdom means sacrificially serving those around us, giving of our time and talents and treasure to serve others. And of course, not to mention that the, the Father's disciplinary love, which is talked about in the book of Hebrews, as he corrects us as his children. The Bible says that, that suffering is, is a part of the Christian life. In fact, Paul is right when he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Right? Like Jesus died for us, right? We, we die to ourselves for him. Now, there's a difference, right? He was paying the debt that we owe. We're not paying any debt, right? We're not meriting anything by our death. And yet he died for us, and we now, we now die to ourselves in order to follow him. And that's, but what the Bible says is that's actually how we find new life in Jesus, right? We give up our lives so we can find them anew in him. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And it's because of this that the Christian life can actually be a life of tremendous hope even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of difficulty. See, we, we know that through suffering and difficulty, God is doing his greatest work. He, he's proven that in the resurrection where the renewal of all things began with the cross and a tomb. And then Jesus rose, Right? God does his greatest work through, actually, suffering and difficulty. And, of course, we have the hope that through all of the suffering and, and, and trials that we go through in this life, we have the hope of our own resurrection at the end of history, right? When Jesus comes back and raises his people and takes us to be with himself. Friends, we, we are the children of God, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't need to prove that by, by trying to pretend that life is better than it really is or that we're not undergoing difficulty or suffering or trials or struggles. But we can move ahead in, in weakness and suffering and trust that God's power will be made perfect through our weakness as we seek to serve others in love to the glory of our Savior who won us the kingdom by his death and by his resurrection. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we praise you for our Savior Jesus. We praise you that he bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We praise you that we are now being conformed to the image of Christ, which means becoming like him in his death and like him in his resurrection life. Father, work that life in us as we die to ourselves and as we learn to live to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.